Today's sermon comes from Luke 14, 7 through 14. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When you notice how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Last year, my uh, wife and I went to a number of weddings. I officiated a number of weddings, um, some probably represented in this room. And uh, there was a period there where we were going to lots of wedding receptions. And they were a blast. So much fun, right? To go to a wedding reception, there's, there's you know, really good food, there's laughter, there's joy, there's dancing. My wife and I got to go out and cut a rug and and uh, have, a, have a blast, and, and the, you know, the, the newly married couple is out dancing and showing off their moves, and, and it's just a, it's a place of joy, right? The wedding reception is just this an utter place of joy and celebration and laughter. Jesus tells a parable about such a wedding feast, and the reason he tells this parable is because there's, there's two parties going on in this story. One is an actual lunch party, a lunch feast, and then one is a, a, a parable that Jesus tells of a, of a wedding feast. The lunch party looks a lot different than the wedding feast. We didn't read it, but the first six chapters of Luke 14 describe this lunch feast that happened after the Sabbath day worship in a synagogue. I said it a couple weeks ago, but the, the Pharisees decided to invite the preacher over. Jesus probably taught in the synagogue at worship, and so they decided to have him over. One of the ruler of the Pharisees had Jesus and other Pharisees over. That was pretty common in the day. But this lunch was not a lunch full of joy and laughter. In fact, what we read is that the Pharisees were trying to test Jesus. They were trying to trap him. So they bring in a man who has dropsy, and they put him before Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and, and says to the crowd of Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They didn't have an answer, so he healed them. Listen, the environment Jesus walked into was a cold, calculated, judgmental, putting themselves in the places of honor, the exact opposite of a wedding reception and a wedding feast. And so Jesus says, I'm going to tell the story, the parable of a wedding feast. Why? Why a wedding feast? Well, if you've been to a wedding reception, you know. It's a place of joy. It's a place of laughter. But why? Why would Jesus tell that? Well, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, the first miracle that Jesus does in the Gospel of John is at a wedding feast. And what's the miracle? 
He turns a lot of water into wine. And not just any wine, good wine, so that the master of the feast comes to the bridegroom, pulls him aside to encourage him. He says, most people serve the bad wine at the end, but you've saved the best till the end. You see, Jesus turned a mediocre feast into a great feast. Why? Because the kingdom of God is a celebratory and joyous feast. The book of Revelation says, at the end of time when Jesus returns, that there's gonna be a wedding reception that is a wedding reception of all wedding receptions. You think you've been to some fun ones. It will not compare to the reception that will take place after the marriage of all marriages. When Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is united to his bride, his church, you and me. It is gonna be a feast of all feasts, joyous laughter. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom and you get to taste it now. And so in the midst of this drab, cold, judgmental, cold, did I already say that, lunch feast, Jesus says the kingdom is about joy and celebration. So let me tell you a parable. Now, here's what he says, though. He says, if you want to experience that feast, if you want to experience the joy of the kingdom of God and the feast that it is, you have to humble yourself. If you don't humble yourself, you will not experience this. If you don't humble yourself, it will end up like this lunch party that the Pharisees are at. Not joyous, not warm, not loving, not welcoming. Why is humility necessary to experiencing the joy of the kingdom of God? Well, first, let's answer the question, what is humility? Jesus defines it in the negative. He starts to explain what it's not in verse 7 when he says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now just some cultural context here as background. In, in that day, in, the ancient, in an ancient day like that, uh, it, was, it was social etiquette of the day that at a wedding feast they would have a, a, a row of couches and tables that would form like a horseshoe. And at the very top was the, was the place or the table where the person of highest honor would sit. And then to his right and left would be next honorable. Okay? And if the guests were not told where to seat, to sit, if it was unassigned seating, then you could have some trouble because the guests would choose where they thought they should sit. And so selfishness and pride and everything would come out. And that's exactly what happened here at this lunch party. Or that's exactly what happened here in the feast that Jesus is, is telling about, the wedding feast, right? People are choosing the place of honor. And this is, you know, this is the, the form of pride that probably is most obvious to most of us. Choosing the place of honor. Putting yourself in a place where you will be um, praised, receiving the accolade of man, of other people, right? Of exalting yourself into a place of honor. This is the one that we go, yeah, I get that form of pride, right? It happens with moms in the child-rearing world. And it takes form on Facebook, right? Where they, they announce all their... Um, their successes on Facebook, but none of their defeats. And so little Johnny, who just turned two, right, is fully potty trained. Uh, and he just read his first chapter book. And, uh, and, and he's riding his bike without training wheels. And he sleeps 12 hours nonstop. And you go, what an amazing child. But the mom puts that on there to hopefully get you to say, what an amazing mom. What has she done? 
You see it in the workplace. When in the workplace, you navigate all your relationships according to, is this person, and relating to this person, will it help me to get promoted or to have a place of reputation in this company? And you can navigate relationships through choosing the place of honor. Happens in the school lunchroom. When you choose who to sit next to, to see based on what that person can do for your reputation, how they can enhance your reputation or get you into an elite crowd or... It's choosing the place of honor. It's exalting yourself. That's the form of pride that we're all most familiar with. But there's another form of pride that is harder to see. If, if the first is self-exaltation, the other form of pride is, is self-deprecation or self-loathing. And we see it in this passage in verses eight through 10, where Jesus describes, he describes the, the self-exaltation, choosing the place of honor, but then what happens to that person? When they, get, when they exalt themselves, eventually they're told, you don't belong there. So move down. Move down the seats. And then they're publicly shamed, right, for sitting in the wrong seat. They didn't deserve that place of honor. And so you have the shaming of this person. You have a low self-esteem. You have failure. You have, I don't measure up. I can't sit there. I have to sit here in a public shaming. And, and that's the... You may ask if, if we're going to talk about um, low self-esteem, about failure. You say, okay, how, how is that a form of pride? Because oftentimes that comes across as humility. But consider the, the feeling worthless, feeling like you don't measure up, feeling like you're a failure, feeling like you're unattractive, right? You know, you got two choices when you're in that place. You can either sit in it and own it and sit in the mud of, of self-pity or you can try to fake your way out of it. Right? Uh, Tom Hanks, in his most recent movie, it's uh, the, the hologram, for the, hologram for the King, he describes this movie is about a middle-aged business Ameri American businessman who moves to Saudi Arabia on special project. And the movie is pointing out this, this issue of no matter how much success you've had and what accomplishments you've made, there's always the question of how did you get there? And they were interviewing Tom Hanks about this role he's playing, and he took this very, uh, he, he very much resonated with this character he was playing, this character that had a lot of self-doubt. And, and listen to what Tom Hanks said. No matter what we've done, Hanks said, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am, in fact, a fraud and take everything away from me? Now, this is Tom Hanks. He's won, what, two Academy Awards. He's been in uh, 70 films and TV shows. And yet he describes, and I'm gonna read the next quote, how as a man, he, he, he feels this inadequacy, this worthlessness. Listen to what he says. It's a high-wire act that we all walk. There are days when I know that three o'clock tomorrow afternoon, I am going to have to deliver some degree of emotional goods. And if I can't do it, that means I'm going to have to fake it. If I fake it, that means they might catch me at faking it. And if they catch me at faking it, well, then it's just doomsday. All right, so when you sit in this place of failure or not measuring up or worthlessness, right, you can either own it and, and roll into self-pity or you can try to fake it. But either way, here's why it's pride. You say, how's that pride? It seems like just utter humility. It's pride because you refuse. You're refusing to accept the Lord's opinion of you. 
You're refusing to accept the Lord's affirmation of you. The Lord says that you're, the Father says you're beautiful in Christ. That you're a masterpiece that he's forming and shaping into something beautiful, what you were always intended to be. And when you fall into that place of low self-esteem, right, that, that appears to be humility, it's pride because you're refusing to accept the Lord's identity that he bought for you. You're refusing to say yes to the identity that God bought for you in Jesus Christ. It's pride. Let me take another, another form of it. When you commit a particular sin, a particular sin that leaves you feeling incredibly guilty. This could be a sin that has put you in the public shame spotlight. It could be a sin that has ruined one of your dear relationships with a family member or with a friend. Or it could be a particular sin that's ruined your future to some degree. And you say, I can't forgive myself for it. And you, you beat yourself up over it and you pay your penance and, and you tell people how remorseful you are and you go on and on and it appears like humility and it's not. It's pride because you're refusing to accept the Lord's forgiveness. When you're in that mode of saying, I can't forgive myself, what you're saying is, God, it wasn't enough for you to give up your son for my sin. I still have to pay something and it's an insult. It's an insult, it's a prideful insult to the Lord when you're in that place. Imagine being invited, it's, it's like being invited to a fancy restaurant. A friend says, I wanna take you out to dinner and I wanna take you to a fancy restaurant. $500 plate dinner. I don't know where that's at, but imagine it. Super, super fancy restaurant. And your friend says, I wanna gift this to you. I wanna give it to you. I love you, and, and this is your response. You say, great, I'd love to come, but, but let me just microwave a few TV dinners and bring it with me. Don't spend that much money on me. I'm not, I'm not worth that, right? It appears as this profound humility. In reality, it's pride that you're unwilling to accept the gift, that you're unwilling to accept charity, that you're unwilling to accept grace, and so what we see here in this parable are two forms of pride. It's self-exaltation and it's self-deprecation, right? Verses eight to 10, it's moving yourself up to a place of honor and it's, or it's moving down to a place of shame. It's, it's uh, thinking more of yourself or it's thinking less of yourself. And humility is neither you see, humility is not a matter of choosing where you belong in the pecking order. High, middle, low. Jesus says humility is not choosing where you belong. It's not exalting yourself to any place. It's not thinking about yourself. Humility is neither thinking more of yourself nor less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. It's self-forgetfulness. That's what humility is. Now you say, how can you get there? What produces this kind of humility? What causes you to humble yourself? And this is where we get to the second question. And I want you to note here, all right, because Jesus says, uh, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted, all right? If you're not careful, 
you can read this parable and come up with a conclusion that's something like this. The way to humility is not to seek honor, affirmation, or reward. Right, you can read it and say, okay, I get it. I know what humility is. I don't seek honor. I don't seek affirmation. I don't seek reward. That's not what Jesus is saying. You look closely. It's not what he's saying. In fact, Jesus paints the, the desire for honor, the desire for affirmation, the desire for reward in a positive light. And he says in, in verse 10, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Verse 11, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 14, for then you will be repaid or rewarded. You see, he speaks of being honored, being affirmed, being rewarded as something that's positive. Question is, where do you get it from? In verses 12 to 14, when he is speaking to the, the ruler of the Pharisees, the host who organized this lunch, notice what he doesn't say to him. He's not concerned that this Pharisee is seeking honor and affirmation. That's not the problem. He's concerned with where he's seeking it from. All right, he says, don't invite your rich neighbors, invite the blind, lame. Why? Because they can't reward you. See, the issue is that this Pharisee is looking for reward from man, from other people. And that's the problem, not the honor and the affirmation itself. If you, let me just say it this way, because the source of your reward will determine your ability to humble yourself. Let me say it again. Jesus is not condemning reward here. He's saying the source of your reward, where you get it from, will determine your ability to humble yourself. If, if you seek reward, honor, affirmation from other people, Jesus says you cannot humble yourself. You will, fall for, you will fall prey to pride in one of the two forms. You'll either exalt yourself, right, or you'll, you'll bring yourself down. You'll seek positive attention, you'll seek negative attention, but you'll seek attention, right? And Jesus says no. And the problem's not honor and affirmation, it's where you get it from. So what, what reward should you be seeking that will, that will motivate humility? Well, he concludes in verse 14 with the answer. Right? Verse 14, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He says to this Pharisee, you know what, the fact that you are seeking honor and affirmation, you know what, that's okay. The fact you're seeking reward, that's okay. You're created that way. You and I are created that way. We're created for affirmation, reward, honor. Jesus says, but where you get it from will determine whether or not you can humble yourself. And Jesus says, the reward is the resurrection of the just, which is speaking of the resurrection at the end of time. When Jesus returns and our bodies come out of the grave and they're united to our souls in the presence of Jesus and we hear that well done, good and faithful servant and the Father expresses his applause and affirmation over us in Christ, that's the reward that Jesus says you should be looking for and that's what will produce humility. That's what will enable you to humble yourself. Stephen Roy, he tells this uh, fictional story of a young violinist in London. And this is a young, incredibly um, talented, gifted violinist, but he has this dread fear of crowds. And so he never plays a concert. 
because of the fear of crowds. And his critics start to come down on him because his music is so beautiful. And they say, you've got to play. You've got to hold a concert. So he finally decides that he's going to hold a concert in the, in the largest concert hall in London. And the place is packed. And he walks in and he starts playing his violin. No music in front, no orchestra behind, just him and his violin. And within 10 minutes, the critics put their pencils down and their pads down and they're just blown away. He plays for an hour and a half. And at the end of an hour and a half, when he's done, the place erupts into this applause. I mean, just raucous applause. People are standing, this ongoing standing ovation. And this young violinist, he's not receiving it. He won't acknowledge it. In fact, it looks like he's peering out in the audience for something he can't find. And then finally, he, he, he sees something and relief comes over his face and he acknowledges the applause. And the critics after the, the concert interview him, they say, hey, your music was great, but we got one question. Why did it take you so long to, to acknowledge the applause of the crowd? And this is what he said. You know, I was really afraid of playing here, yet this was something I knew I needed to do. Tonight, just before I came on stage, I received word that my master teacher was to be in the audience. Throughout the concert, I tried to look for him, but I could never find him. So after I finished playing, I started to look more intently. I was so eager to find my teacher that I couldn't even hear the applause. I just had to know what he thought of my playing. That was all that mattered. Finally, I found him high in the balcony. He was standing and applauding with a big smile on his face. After seeing him, I was finally able to relax. I said to myself, if the master is pleased with what I have done, then everything else is okay. You see, the, the applause of the father produces humility because the applause of the father gives you exactly what you're looking for when you exalt yourself. Exactly what you're looking for when you're, when you're seeking honor and affirmation outside of Christ, from people, from man. So if we've looked at the definition of humility, neither thinking more of yourself nor less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less, and what produces humility, right? Receiving honor and affirmation, you need that. But from the Father, ultimately from the Father, then Let's answer the final question. What's the result of humility? What's the result of it? Jesus states it very clearly in verse 11. He says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. There it is. That's the result. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Now, what does that mean? Ephesians 2, chapter 6, gives us some, sheds some light on this says, we are raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 goes on to say that salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, Paul is using battlefield imagery here in Ephesians 2. If in that day you went out and conquered in battle, when you returned home, you would receive a seat at the right hand of the king's throne. That's how it worked. When Jesus conquered sin and death 
and returned home, he received the seat at the right hand of the Father that he was honored. And you and I, though physically are not raised up with him today, you're sitting in a seat here at the university center. Legally, we are. Positionally, we are, which means that the Father honors us and affirms us as he does his own son. Colossians 3 says we're raised with Christ and our life is hidden with Christ in God. That means we're hidden with Christ. Listen, can you imagine, can you imagine what Jesus Christ experienced after he completed his earthly mission, after he went to battle? He came to earth, he conquered sin, He conquered death. He conquered Satan by rising from the dead. And then it says he ascended into heaven, which means he returned home. Can you imagine what happened when he he walked, so to speak, into heaven? Can you imagine the roar? Can you imagine the angels and the Father that roared with applause that Jesus had just defeated sin and death and Satan, secured God's family, the place erupted. I'm sure it did. And here's the staggering truth, that if you are in Christ, you receive that same applause, that same staggering applause and affirmation from your father because you're in Christ. That's what it means to be exalted today that you receive that honor and that you receive that affirmation. You know, the the opposite is true. Jesus says in verse 11, the opposite is true. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. What's that mean? If you exalt yourself, meaning if you seek honor and affirmation and applause outside of Christ and from people, you're gonna be humbled. Why? Why? Because the affirmation and the honor of people in this world is temporary. It's temporary. It falls apart. And you're left at some point humbled and shamed. Daniel Murphy, who some of you may know, he, he attends here or he has, a, he has attended here uh, in the offseason. He's the second baseman for the Washington Nationals. Uh, last year, he played second base for the New York Mets. And you may remember his end-of-the-year run. He... Uh, in the National League Championship Series. He hit a home run in six straight games. A major league record. All time, major league record. He was awarded the MVP of the National League Championship Series. Uh, He describes, I mean, the applause, right? The applause, I mean, the New Yorkers are going nuts. New York City is going just ape over what Daniel Murphy has just done. So much so that he said when he went to Central Park, the next day after he got awarded the MVP, after he had hit his sixth home run in six games and broken the records, he's at the park with his wife and his kids, which normally was a time for private family time in the park and relative obscurity. Except this day he went out and he had 50 kids surrounding him, just clamoring for his autograph. The roar! And if you know the story, his World Series was quite different. Right? His, his batting cooled off. And then in game four, he had that costly error that got just put up everywhere. And suddenly, the applause was gone. The roar was gone. The affirmation was gone, just like that. Now, Daniel's a man who gets his honor from Christ, so he pressed through. 
But the point is this, the applause, the affirmation, anything in this world outside of Christ is short-lived. And if you exalt yourself, meaning that you seek that honor and affirmation from those around you, if you put yourself in a place of honor, if you exalt yourself, you're going to get humbled. But if you let the Father exalt you, if you let the Father speak his honor and affirmation over you because you're hid in Christ, you'll be exalted. You'll receive the honor that you're longing for. What's the result of humbling yourself and being exalted? It's indestructible joy. We're back to where I started. It's a kingdom feast. It's a wedding reception. It's a party. It's a joy that can't be shaken. Why is it indestructible? Because the one thing that your heart wants, the one piece of affirmation and honor that your heart wants can't be taken away. It's yours in Christ, no matter what happens. I've shared this before, but a teacher, before class one day, before the kids came in, she uh, taped a piece of candy under one third of the chairs. She taped a bag of candy under another third of the chairs. And then under the last third of chairs, she put nothing. The kids come into class one day and they're laughing and, and, and having fun and there's joy in the room. And she's like, this is a, it's a great day joy and laughter, and these kids are in a good mood. Everything's great. They're not fighting. They're getting along. And then after about five minutes, she said, I want you to look under your seat. Things changed awfully quickly. Some got a piece of candy. Some got nothing. Some got a bag of candy. And instantly, the room is filled with anger, bitterness, envy. And the irony is, nothing was taken away from these kids. What changed? Their source of joy. Their source of joy changed. Listen, life in this world is, some days it's a a piece of candy. Some days it's a bag of candy. And some days it's nothing. But when you're receiving your honor and your affirmation from God the Father, when you're hearing his roar of applause because you're hidden Christ, it doesn't matter If you get nothing, if you get a piece of candy, or if you get a bag of candy. Because what your heart needs that you get from God the Father can never be taken away. And that's why Jesus says, humble yourself and you will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, with ourselves, for many of us, our joy is stripped. For many of us, our lives probably reflect more of this lunch party at the Pharisee's house where there's competition, where there's judgment, where there's coldness, where there's calculation, always trying to look next door and see who's in what position and jockeying for position. If we're honest, we all are probably in that place and it absolutely strips our joy. Jesus, you tell us that your kingdom is a joyous feast when we humble ourselves and when we are exalted, when we receive honor and affirmation from you, Father. Lord, would you bring us to that place 
where we sit beneath the roar of applause, the roar of affirmation from you because we're hidden Christ. And would you restore our joy? No matter what we find in our lives, whether we have much or it's taken away or there's nothing or there's hurt or there, whatever it is, we wanna be a people who are a joyful people because we're exalted, we're honored, and we're affirmed by God the Father. As we close in worship now, Father, we long to sing to you with a roar. Underneath your applause, we, we, we long to sing to you, and as we sang earlier, pour out our praise in joy to the one who has affirmed and honored and rescued us. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.